Bible. Let's take our Bibles and let's go to James. That's where we've been on Wednesdays for a while. We'll go back to James this evening. James chapter number 4. And as you're finding your place there, just want to remind you about our Merry Christmas cards out there in the lobby. I encourage you to get you a handful of these and be handing them out. And because it's a great uh, evangelizing tool, okay? And uh, I encourage you to take, take several of these, be handing them out as you go through, through the, through the drive-thrus, the grocery stores, gas stations, wherever you go, and be handing these out. And a simple way to do so is this. You take one and say, hey, I just want to wish you a Merry Christmas. I want to give you this Christmas card. And a lot of times people will not turn those away, all right? They'll accept it, they'll take it, put it in their pocket, and say thank you. And when they get home, they'll maybe begin to look at it and see on the back, it is an invitation to church, yes, but more importantly, it has the gospel on the back. And you just never know how God will use His Word as a seed in the heart of somebody else. But we need to do our diligent best, our very best, to give out the gospel. And this is just another simple way to do so. So I encourage you, get you a handful of them, and be handing them out this Christmas season, all right? James chapter 4 is where we will be, and we've been in James for some time, but as we come back to it, just keep in mind the, uh, that James is writing to Jewish believers, okay? And uh, these believers have been largely scattered, scattered abroad, because of the cruel persecution that they are suffering from the political crowds of the day, as well as the religious crowds of the day. And it was seen that this persecution was the first big wave against the early church. But, uh, but keep in mind that as James is writing, he's writing pri primarily to an audience of people who are going through great struggle. Uh, they're hurting. They're suffering. They're absolutely confused, and they need a lot of help. They need somebody to instruct them, somebody to encourage them, somebody to help them through the difficult time which they're, they're facing. And so James does just that. He sits down with pen in hand under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and begins to instruct and encourage these believers through a difficult time. And as we've come to James chapter number 4, we find that James begins to do a lot of that instructing, especially as he's dealing with individuals, as he took note of it in, in chapter 4, in the first part of it, really the first seven verses, uh, how he makes it known that there was warring and fightings among, among them. Uh, James knows he was dealing with some believers who had strife in their life, and there was strife in the midst of of their congregation, and they were combative one towards, one towards another. And there's a lot of fighting, seemingly, a lot of fighting going on within the, the believers' lives as well as, as the church. And James needed to, to address it because if it went unchecked, then that kind of strife could get out of control and have some grave consequences to the church. And so James gives great instructions of how to solve these issues, and it comes down to these three. Humble yourself, submit yourself to God, and draw nigh unto the Lord. Because listen, when we do this, the fusses and the fights in our lives begin to dissipate. James knew that, and so he's given this instruction to these people. But as we come to verse number 13 of chapter number 4, it would seem that James begins to shift his thought just a little from their present fusses to their future plans. All right? And it's still, still wrapped up in the whole context of it all. We'll see that in a minute uh, towards the end of this uh, lesson here, message tonight. But he moves a little bit, begins to shift a little bit of his thinking from their present fusses to their future plans. So let's look at it this evening and starting in verse number 13. And we'll read down through verse 17 and finish out the chapter tonight. But the Bible says this, 
Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now you rejoice in your boastings, and all such rejoicing is evil. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Our Father, as we look to your word this evening, I pray you would help us to make personal application to it and apply it to our lives so we'd be better believers, we'd be growing Christians, growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. We love you. Thanks for loving us first, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, the first thing I'd like for us to see quickly this evening is this. Number one, take note uh, in this text here of their plan. It would seem as if uh, at this moment James may be referring to some of the merchant men, merchant folks within the church, and uh, pointing out they have a plan. Look again at verse number 13. Go to now ye that say, he, he's, he's talking to a specific group, ye that say, Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such a city and continue there year and buy and sell and get gain. He is pointing out they have a plan, but there's something here that's interesting to me. As he points it out, and it starts with this first phrase you find in verse number 13 when he says, go to now. Uh, now, when we read this, one may think that James is giving these dear believers some direction. Or maybe, maybe somebody might be thinking that, that he's telling these believers to go to a certain location, like he's being a GPS, all right? But that's not exactly what this phrase means. He is not suggesting that they go to a certain location at all. You see, this phrase, go to now, is more of a, an attention-getting phrase. It's more of a catchphrase for, for him, for these uh, folks at this time. You see, what James will be referencing, what he's using his phrase for, he's saying it like this. He's saying, come on now. Uh, come on, man, as your president would say. He said, come on, man. Come on now. That was, that was a joke, folks. Okay, anyways, all right. He was saying, come on, guys. Come on, guys. You guys that are actually saying this, come on now. You're saying you're going to do this or that? Come on now. That's what he's saying. That's what he's getting at. And it's a phrase that is used really almost in a, in a disbelief type of scenario. Like, you really going to do that? Come on now. You know? So that's the phrase. That's kind of what he's getting at, getting at here. So it would seem that James really could not believe what he's hearing from these believers. I don't know who he's hearing it from or if he's heard it with his own ears from these people specifically or he's heard it from other messengers that have brought back the scenarios going on back to him. I don't know exactly, but he just cannot believe he's flabbergasted at the news he has received from these persecuted believers of what their plans really were. Now you may be thinking, well, good night. I mean, as I read this, I'm not seeing much of an issue here. What was the big deal? I mean... If it's, if it's that bad, well, he would say, I mean, come on, guys, what are you thinking? If it's that terrible for Pastor James to say this, especially after he's addressed the fussing and fighting in the first half of this chapter, what really was so wrong with this plan? What's the big deal with this plan? Well, understand their plan was this. Their plan was to go into a certain city and make a profit. Their plan was to go into a certain area, buy, sell, 
and get gain. Here's their plan. You ready? Their plan was for prosperity. Now, before you think I'm against making a profit, before you think I'm against making uh, or being prosperous, just know I am not against that at all. There's nothing wrong with that in and of itself, especially if it's used for the Lord. There's nothing wrong with having riches as long as riches don't have you, you see. Besides, there's some great positives that we see from this verse alone as these individuals with their plan, of their prosperity plan. Uh, first, we can see that they were not waiting for, for a handout. All right, They were not waiting for a bailout. They were rather willing to work, willing to invest, willing to grow their wealth by honest means. It would seem like they're following that method of, dare I say it, capitalism. Oh my, okay. It would seem that their plan for all of this to make money is A-OK. And besides, keep in mind historical context. As they're under great persecution, they probably have lost most of their wealth anyway. They've probably lost a lot of their property under this persecution from these political and religious leaders at this moment. So they need some money due to all of this. So... For most folks, looking at this plan, they wouldn't think twice about it. And many would cheer them on. Well, yeah, go do that, man. Most people do that. Most people cheer them on, except James in this moment. But why? Why was he almost using this phrase, go to now? Come on, guys, what are you thinking type of phrase? Why would he use this phrase and, and seemingly make it a big deal and almost in a disbelief type of thing with their plans? Why? Well, number two, I want to see the problem. So they had a plan. We're going to go to this city. We're going to buy, and then we're going to turn around and sell it and make a profit. We're going to do that for a whole year. Okay. But there's a problem in that. So number two, I want to see their problem. You see, their problem was not with the plan itself, but their problem was with the presumption behind the plan. Look again at verse 13. Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Okay, verse 14. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, what is your life? It's even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Did you notice that little phrase there in verse number 13 when it says this? We will. There's actually uh, four implied we wills in that verse, in verse 13. They were implying that we will go into a certain city and that we will stay there for an entire year and that we will buy, we will sell, and we will make a profit. We will do these things. Look at it, verse 13. Go to now, ye that say today or tomorrow, we will Go into such a city, continue there a year, buy and sell, and get gain. It sounds like these individuals at this moment, they were very confident in their plan. But the question I have is confident in who? Confident in what? It would seem, absolutely, it would seem they're very confident in themselves. Again, this would be pointing to very pride that James has been pointing out, even in this chapter alone. 
it points back to their, to their pride. Now look, I don't want you to get the wrong idea this evening. I, I'm not saying it's, it's, a, it's a bad thing to have plans. And I don't think the Bible teaches it's a bad thing to have, to have plans. But I will say this. I, I do think it's bad to have plans and leave God out of the equation. I, I think it's bad to have plans and not allow the Lord to direct those plans. I think it's bad to have plans and not allow the Lord to even change those plans. Uh, listen, it's bad to have plans and not have God in the middle of them. And I believe that's the problem here. You see, we must, we must keep the Lord center of our lives. We must allow Him to be the Lord of every inch of our lives. I've heard someone say this before, if he's not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. Now I get what they're trying to say. They're just trying to emphasize that God, he is Lord of all of our being, all of our lives, and he should be. But it seems at this moment that these believers, and especially the ones he's speaking to, it didn't, didn't involve, their plans didn't involve God. It would seem they were leaving out God in their life, and they were operating, listen, operating outside of the will of God, which leads me to point number three. And this is our last point this evening. You're saying, moving fast, preacher, I am trying to get to this point, all right? Here's, here's, our, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see this, number three, and lastly, the principles we find in these verses. Look at the principles, all right? Look again in verse number 15. For that... Ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now you rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. So, so we see uh, the, these believers had a plan, but they had a problem with that plan. But here in this moment, again, as James is trying to instruct them and encourage them and help them through this historical terrible time of the first century, as a believer, he gives them some broad principles to live by. But these broad, they're, I mean, they're broad. I'm going to tell you what they are, and they're going to encompass, just about encompass the entirety of the Christian life. All right? So I see two principles quickly I want you to see. I want to point them out to you this evening. And the first one is this, broad principle number one. Here it is. Do the will of God. Do the will of God. You know, it's interesting. When James starts out writing this epistle here to these scattered believers, he, uh, he points out the fact that uh, they were out of the will of God. Remember in this chapter... He says that these believers were lusting, right? They were full of lust, full of sinful, uh, prideful desires. And in verse number 2, they were even at the point of killing, right? And even full of themselves in verse number 3. And in verse number 4, they were being even so friendly and cordial with, with the world and speaking evil one of another in verse number 11. But all of this, all of this made them even at war with God, you cannot be at war with God and in the will of God, okay? So that tells me they were operating outside of the will 
of the will of God. I like what uh, uh, Wearsby said. Warren Wearsby said this in one of his commentaries. He said, when a believer is out of the will of God, that he will become a troublemaker and not a peacemaker. And that is what was going on with these believers in this moment as they're fussing with one another, fighting with one another, wars among them, speaking evil one of another. They were being troublemakers one toward another. Why? Mm, completely outside of the will of God. And listen, the same can be true for us even today. When we are outside, when we are living outside of God's will for our life, we will, listen, we will make trouble for others. And we will make trouble for ourselves. Mark it down. Preacher said it. It's going to happen. When we operate outside of the will of God for our lives. We can look at example after example in Scripture of individuals, even godly people, who for one reason or another began to operate outside of the will of God and it caused great trouble for them and great trouble for others. Take, for instance, Lot. Lot in the Old Testament, when he and his uncle were having a strife, his godly uncle Abraham said, let there be no strife between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. We need to separate, and I want you to take the first pick of which plain or which field or which area you would like to take and have. And he gave them the options, which by the way, we know that Lot chose Sodom, but that was never an option that Abraham gave him. Okay? He did not say you can have Sodom or this place. He did not say that. Abraham knew what was in Sodom and Gomorrah. He knew. So he would never tell his nephew Lot to go down that place, all right? But Lot chose that outside the will of God for himself. And we know the rest is history. How as he was in, how he was in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, he caused a lot of trouble for others, but especially for himself and for his, for his family. How about David? At a time when it was God's will, when kings went forth to battle, he was supposed to be on the battlefield with his men. What happened? David stayed home and over a period of time. We know that he committed some immoral acts with Bathsheba, an adventure which led to her husband's murder to cover up his sin. But all of that happened. The trouble for others and the trouble for himself for generations happened. Why? Because he was outside of the will of God. You can look at the life of Moses, a godly man, when the Israelites again became complaining to him that they had no water and he came to the Lord and said, these rebels have no water. Come complaining again. What do I do? The Lord told him plainly, here's what I want for you, Moses. Speak to the rock. You'll have water. What did he do? In anger, he smote the rock. He hit the rock with, with his staff twice. The result was the same. He got the water. But in the end result, it caused him a lot of trouble. He was not able to enter their promised land. There are so many others in Scripture. Who comes to mind? Someone talk, talk to me this evening. Who comes to mind when you think of somebody who operated outside of the will of God and it caused trouble for others and for themselves? Abraham not waiting on Isaac. Abraham not waiting on Isaac. Yes. Watch the news lately. Hello. All right. You have Ishmael versus Isaac still today. Absolutely. Who else comes to mind? Jonah. Absolutely. Uh, Jonah rebelled against God, ran away from God, almost cost him his life as well as the lives of many others within that ship, those merchantmen. Yes, sir. Achan, yes. Achan stole. 
from God. And it cost him his life, as well as the lives of 36 of his fellow soldiers and the lives of his own family. Who else comes to mind? Joseph? And uh, his brothers, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, his brothers definitely operating outside the will of God. It cost them dearly. Who else comes to mind? Yes, David, absolutely. Listen, there are several others we can look at in Scripture that operated outside the will of God, and it cost them dearly. It cost them dearly. It, it, it caused trouble in the lives of others and trouble in their lives as well. There's two, there's so many that had the wrong attitude towards it. Again, Wiersbe said this. He had a lot of rich things to say as I studied in this portion of Scripture. But he said, too many Christians look at the will of God as a bitter medicine they must take instead of seeing it as a gracious evidence of the love of God. Man, I like that. Let me read it to you again in case you want to write it down. Too many Christians look on the will of God as bitter medicine they must take instead of seeing it as the gracious evidence of the love of God. I find this to be true in many people's lives. But the reason, the reason being that folks look at the will of God like that, like this. They look at the will of God as, listen, optional instead of obligatory. They look at it as optional. They look at God's will as take it or leave it. With that type of mentality, many people look at it that way, but I'm telling you tonight that is completely wrong. Some look at God's will and, and they know what God's will is for their life and they're looking like, yeah, I didn't. Lord, are you sure? <laughs> Lord, I just don't know about that. And I'm talking about the will of God's crystal clear, okay? And we look at it and say, no, I don't know about that. Now for any believer to say to the clear will of God for their life, I don't know about that, or uh, probably not, Lord. Anytime we would say that to the clear will of God for our life, then listen, here's what we are implying. We'll never say it. We will never say this, but we will imply it with our actions. Lord, I think I know better than you. Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> we imply it when we say, Lord, I don't know about that will. I don't think I want to do that. We imply, Lord, I, I, I know a better way. I, I have a better, better plan. But friend, listen, you and I, we ain't smarter than God. God knows what's best. And listen, beside God's will, it is a blessing and not a drudgery. And in doing God's will, there is great delight and not misery. Though the lion stinking devil will try to convince us otherwise. So I want to encourage you today, as a saint of God, as believers, to just simply do the will of God and stay in it. And of course, the best way to continue to stay in the will of God is to stay in the Word of God. For in the Word of God, we find the will of God in black ink on white paper, it's there. Stay in the will of God. Principle number one. What was he trying to teach them? What was he trying to help them? What was he trying to encourage them with? 
These principles, principle number one, do the will of God. Again, it's quite broad. I understand that. But it's still a principle. Principle number two, what does he tell them? All right. Number two, do what's right. Again, quite broad. Just do what's right. Look at verse number 17. Look at it with me, James chapter 4, verse 17. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. This verse here is the whole conclusion of chapter number 4. And with everything that James has confronted these believers about with their fusses, with their fights, with everything they're facing, James just gets down to the brass tacks of the matter and tells them to do this. Just do good. Just just do what you know is honest. Just do what is right. That's what he's telling them at this moment. Do the right thing. And his principle, though it's so broad, it is so simple. Just do what's right. It's that simple, is it not? The principle, at least, (laughs) is so simple. But yet we make it out to be so difficult. Why? Why do we do this? Why do we make something so simple out to be so difficult? Is it because of our pride? Our stinking fleshly pride? Because it's all about us. Again, these folks are saying, we will do this, we will do that. Is that why we don't always do what's right? Because I want to do what I want to do. Is it because of fear? Fear of man? What is it that causes us this simple instruction from the Word of God? It can't get much simpler than verse 17. Just do what's right. Why do we make it so hard? Why do we do this? That might be a question you need to answer yourself in your own time. Be honest with yourself. Why do we make it so difficult? But listen, if we would apply and obey and act upon these principles that James is just simply pointing out, I am over the moon confident that there would not be near the many of problems that we can encounter within the fellowship and body of believers. And you definitely wouldn't have these things going on in chapter number 4, especially in the first, first seven verses taking place. You wouldn't have none of that if we would do the will of God and just do what's right. All these things we put to rest. But why should I? I mean, after all, not everybody has my best interest in mind, so why should I do what's right? Why can't I just be in this thing for myself? Okay. Here's one reason, one motivation I want to leave for you this evening before we go of why should I do the will of God for my life and why should I do the right thing? Why should I? Good question. Look at verse number 14 with me. I want you to see it. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. Look at this question. Look at this question that James gives. For what is your life? He begins to show them and tell them what their life is. It is even a vapor 
that appeareth for a little time and vanishes away. We've been having a lot of cold weather lately. And no doubt you've, you've breathed your warm breath in that cool air and you see a little vapor there, right? When you leave this evening, I encourage you to just do that when you leave. And when you breathe your warm breath in that cool air, say these words, There goes my life. It's here and gone. Here and gone. No matter if you live to be one years old or 101 years old or longer, at the end of it all, you're going to say, man, life was short. I've had the privilege recently to stand at the bedsides of individuals just before they've taken their last breaths. And they say the same thing. I never expected it to go this fast. <laughs> I thought we'd have more time. And some of them are 70s, 80s, even older, 90s. They all say the same thing. Life was short. So that should motivate all of us to do the will of God and do us right. Because one day we're all going to stand on our own two feet before the judge of all the earth and give an account. Because as verse number 12 says, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. And who art thou that judgest another? Of course, he's pointing them to the Lord in that moment. So let that motivate us to do the will of God. Just do us right. Because one day we have to give an account for our life. That is but a vapor. appears for a little time. Vanishes away. So do the will of God now and do us right now. Start now.